Welcome to the Diplomen Podcast, where we will be talking with and about incredible women mediators, facilitators, negotiators, ambassadors, peacemakers, peace builders, and more. I am Karma Ekmekci, and I will be your host in this journey of mainstreaming the women, peace, and security agenda into our lifestyles. With a focus on the Arab region, the Diplomen Podcast comes to you in collaboration with the Isan Fars Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at the American University of Beirut, and is made possible by the generous support of UN Women. The Arabic subtitled video edition is available on the Diplomen Podcast YouTube channel. We're thinking out loud with Dr. Renda Slim in this fourth episode of the Diplomen Podcast. Renda is a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute. She's also the director of their conflict resolution program and their track to dialogues program. Renda is also a non-resident fellow at CISA's Foreign Policy Institute. Thank you for being with us. Oh, good to be with you, Kerma, always. Uh, Renda, I want us to have this chat today uh, and tell our listeners what and how your journey was like into this world of peace building, this world of dialogue, uh, how it started and how it's going. Well, I mean, okay, it started as a student at AUB doing a master in social psychology in the midst of the civil war. And, um, and deciding that I would like to focus the rest of my career on conflict studies, on negotiation, on bringing citizens around negotiation tables to end conflicts. Because, you know, growing up in the midst of a civil war, I was able to experience very closely the cost of war. And to be very honest, how silly war is in a way, you know, Absolutely. especially in Lebanon. And, and 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 so and so when I went to grad school in the States, I was focused, starting to focus on continue to work in the field of political psychology, you know, which we did not have at AUB. And then also start and did a minor international relations. And um, I was one summer, one one semester assigned by the school to invite speakers to our program. And I happened to invite somebody who basically I, I read his one of his articles at the library, you know, at AUB in psychology mm -hmm. today, Jeff Rubin, the late Jeff, the late great Jeff Rubin. And so I said, I would like to invite him, you know. So I invited him and he came. And really we struck a friendship from the get-go. And at the time he was directing the program on negotiation at Harvard Law School. So he invited me to uh, spend a summer, do a summer fellowship at the program. And then after that, he became really my mentor in terms of introducing me to people, you know, finding jobs. And remember, I was a foreign student. So that the latter part of my graduate school, Jeff like took on the mantle of finding a job for Renda Slim because he did not <laughs> want her to go back 
toward toward Lebanon, you know? The importance of having a mentor who empowers you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, and so one day out of the blue, I was visiting Lebanon and then I come back and then, you know, Jeff calls and he says, oh, you have a job interview. I said, excuse me, Jeff, what job? He said, you have a job interview with the Kettering Foundation. I said, what is that? He said, it's in Dayton, Ohio. I said, where is Dayton, Ohio? He said, go and find a map. You will see where Dayton, Ohio is. And then, and I said, what is the job about? And he said, well, it is this foundation, the Kettering Foundation. So I had no idea about US philanthropy and all of this, which is a very interesting world by itself. And I don't think many people in Lebanon know about it, especially in academia. Or the region, in fact, because there are anyway from across the region. And it's- exactly, exactly. And so he said, he said, so, and they have this one year fellowship, which you can do. Um, they have this program on track to diplomacy, uh, US Soviet. Um, and it's like one of the oldest in the country, most prestigious, known as the Dartmouth Conference, because the first meeting happened at Dartmouth College in the 60s. Mm-hmm. It was established by President um, uh, Eisenhower on one side and Khrushchev, Premier Khrushchev on the other side, uh, in the midst of the Cold War to create a space for citizens. It started with artists, dancers, uh, writers, you know, politicians, yeah, bringing people from both sides, you know, the Soviet Union. And then over time, it has evolved into this really elaborate process of plenaries, task forces, and they had task forces on regional conflicts, you know, all from the perspective of the U.S.-Russia relations, you know, U.S.-Russia competition. Because remember, in the in that dialogue, it was only Russians and Americans, mm-hmm. not people from the region. They had a task force on disarmament. They had a task force on political relations. And so he said they are interested in having somebody with a, like, you know, with a conflict resolution background, especially process-wise, come and they have a grant for one year to come and look at it, observe it, and write an evaluation of this process and look at all the documents that they have accumulated over the years. So it was like a treasure trove diving. Here I am diving into this treasure trove of tens of meetings, bringing the most important people over the years in the lives of Russia and the United States. And, 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 and just spending the year reading these reports. And then I got to travel to, you know, the Soviet Union, still then the Soviet Union, and attend the meetings, you know, and it was just for me like, oh my God, what is this? And, and, but that was one year, it was going to end. And for me, that sealed the deal, you know, I am not going to devote my life in academia. This is not for me, this is for me. I would like to do that. And so luckily I was offered a job, you know, full-time job after that with the Kettering Foundation. And I mean, to be, to be in talks between Russians and Americans at this time, it's like being in the Disneyland of track to diplomacy. And- I know. <laughs> and, and especially that it involves really top-notch people, you know, it involves people who are excellent at doing that job, you see what I mean? And, and to watch this kind of excellence in practice, you see what I mean? It's amazing because, you know, talk about the challenge. I mean, a lot of the challenge is also to be exposed or to be part of these settings to observe because initially you need to observe to take it in. You can read, you can read all you want about it, but to see it in action, 
time after time after time and to be able to sit during breakout you know uh, session i mean yeah. in the breakout in the coffee, in the coffee session, break networking to people uh, sitting at lunch table you know next to this former senator who eventually became vice president you know what i mean i mean talking to people and then taking it all in and for me also as a foreigner really understanding us politics and decision making processes in the us you know in the us government because i had no clue what it was and here you have on the us side some of the top notch people from the military from the political from the economic from civil society coming together with their counterparts in russia but you really through the american delegation get to understand how this country works you know right. what makes it tick and that I, was i have so many so many questions to ask you but first uh maybe you can quickly tell our listeners uh what track to diplomacy is what yeah. track to dialogue is and how is it different than track 1 1 or 1.5 uh very quickly because I, i'm sure some will be wondering um what is track to diplomacy great that's a very good question um so as a baseline track 1 is government work okay this is what governments do when they sit down and negotiate with each other mm-hmm. that's track 1 So two friends of mine uh, John McDonald late John McDonald and Louise Diamond wrote this book called Multi-Track Diplomacy and they identified like I don't know 15 tracks of diplomacy um and 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 some you know one track that identified is businessmen you know talking to each other cementing relationship that include because i mean it all depends on how because it 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 really roots itself this whole work roots itself in the, in a expansive definition of politics mm-hmm. that politics is not what officials do only politics is the whole realm of relationship and interaction between peoples you know right. and so, top, top exactly so so you have businessmen to businessmen you know and we all know the role that armand hammer for example played in us soviet relations through his business interaction uh with the soviet leadership over many years uh, uh so it's journalist to journalist it is citizen to citizen hello the track to track 1.5 because i do both i focus on is policy focused dialogues so uh uh on on specific so spaces on specific issues mm-hmm. uh for example i'll give you a recent example we have a i i co-convene with other colleagues at the middle east institute but also at uh at uh, nisa at national defense university in the states a us russia dialogue you know and that brings americans and russian experts some of them former officials some of them are experts with access to decision makers to discuss syria but we are not discussing the, we don't have syrians in the room we have basically americans and russians discussing syria through the prism of can we collaborate can we cooperate together on conflict deescalation what are the venues so while it is a, a dialogue about syria the focus of it is very specific and that's very important when you do track 1.5 or track 2 is that you really have a niche you focus you cannot talk about everything but rather you focus on a specific issue area so track 1.5 is when you have current officials who are attending this dialogue in an unofficial capacity okay and or former or former official like 
President Carter. You can have both, but you also, but you need to have current officials because yes. this is between one and two, you know, and, and track two is when you have, you know, former officials, senior experts, but also it all goes into the criteria you as a designer of a track two process, as a convener of the process, put your, for yourself, you know. Mm -hmm. For example, in, in, in my case, and we have a number of track 1.5, you know, intervention that we have been doing at the Middle East Institute for some time now. One of the criterion usually I have is that you have you have to, every participant has to have had government experience because this is a policy focused workshop, mm -hmm. you know? And, and, and I think academia by itself does not give you that kind of experience, right? I mean, you have been in government and you have been, and you are in academia and you move between the two, you know, worlds, if we can put it this way. They are bridges. And, 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 and I there are more firmer bridges, bridges between Exactly, exactly. And that's also the other thing is that the always the struggle, you know, and we have you have terminology is 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 the transfer. Is that how you transfer from track two into track one? How right. you take ideas from track two into track one, but also how you design how you design, for example, your agenda around questions that track one is struggling with, right. and that track right. two can provide a safe space to address and and explore in a non-committal way because there is no because these are not official negotiation. Right. And one thing I always the, the say: the cameras are not on you. The cameras are. And the track two, track two, track one point five. You know, really, it's about exploration of idea, testing ideas, building relationships. But the problem remains always, and I think it's a very valid criticism: a track two to work cannot involve more than twenty people at best. So you are talking about you know a, a group of twenty. Mm -hmm. And again, the work that I do, I like sustained track two. I Basically, I try to involve a core group of those 20 over and over and over and over. So I have a dialogue, for example, that started in 2012, 2000, 2000 no, sorry, to, uh, sorry, yeah, 2012. And, and, and so, and it's still going on, you know. A and, serious and, dialogue is one that is medium to long term. I mean, this. Yeah, exactly. And because we are addressing issues that are so intractable. I mean, mm -hmm. after all, we are not talking about, you know, a, a, a conflict that is amenable, easy to, to easy solution. Because oh. if it is the case, government have already done it. You know, it has already been solved, you know. But if you are focusing on intractable problems, which is the case in, in, in our work, that takes time, that takes sustained effort, that takes building trust, and that takes building relationships and building networks, and that needs a sustained approach. So many young women and, and young men uh, who are finishing their undergrads or their master's degrees and then come and tell me, um, we really like this, you know, peace building, uh, dialogue space, you know, peace and security, but uh, we studied engineering, for instance. You're telling me you studied social psychology. What's the message? I mean, anyone can invest their time and energy and resources into this. I, I, I sometimes worry about some of the students that feel hostage to their degree. What do we tell these young women and men? Is, is it okay for them to break away from the shackles of the diploma that they, they received from university? I have to clarify. I, I mean, I studied social psych in my in my MA, but in my doctorate, I did a minor in international relations, and I invested equal amount of time, you know, in social psych, 
political psych and international relations. So the hardcore political relations, I mean, international relations, the whole modeling approach, you know, the whole interstate thing. But I did it because I felt that there is a lot of things that you can learn from intergroup theories that could mm-hmm. apply to interstate conflict and intrastate conflict. And that's, I think, the next, you know, the, the intersection I, wa- I have been, I was focusing on in academia. Also, it's important, you know, is, is that not only the, kind of degree you get, but also I think you have to be open. I mean, I know many people go into academia thinking they want to be in academia, which is right. fine. But also if it doesn't turn out, there are now so many options out there that are not, that are equally fulfilling. And the, the, the whole attitude, I mean, I was forced to take on this attitude because I was a foreign student, uh, Lebanon is in the middle of the civil war. I needed to find a job, you know, that gives me legal ways to stay in the country. And so I was open to explore anything, you know what I mean? And, 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 but that's, 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 I think, in a way, you know, the unfortunate circumstances of Lebanon at the time forced me to, to really go out of my comfort zone, huh? And, uh, you know, the training that, I was prepared for and the field I was being prepared for and explore, you know, job opportunities wherever they were, you know, and in a way I was fortunate to fall on this kind of job opportunity. And for this, I always, even when he was alive, you know, I always said to Jeff Rubin, and now he has passed away way, way, way too soon, unfortunately, is, is basically, you know, he gave me my biggest opportunity. I mean, my career is, in a way due to, 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 to Jeff Rubin. Uh, so uh, so I, it's just they have to be open to engage, to, to take a leap of faith, right. to believe themselves and to explore new areas of inquiries, new areas of work. Some might work from the first time, some might not work, but I mean, usually, you know, when you graduate, you are what, in your 20s? My God, I mean, you have you have a whole, you know, time ahead of you. And so take few years to explore, you know, really take few years to do this, that, you know, X, Y, Z of kind of work, and then see what you can put together. I mean, I always say, even when, you know, young women approach me in the States, oh, how can we do this? Or somebody got a job and then say, what do you think I should do? I said, no matter what you do, there is a job agenda, but there is your own agenda. You always carve your own agenda in whatever work you are doing. And, and that's very important to, to be able to identify from the get-go is what is your agenda? What do you want to be? What do you want to do? You know, by the time you turn off the light, how do you want to be remembered? And so, um, uh, uh, so it's, it's just what kind of, of, of difference you want to make if you can, although, you know, now reaching my age, really there's not much <laughs> impact and there is not much difference, you know, I mean, I, you are, you know, like I'm a very, 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 very small fish in a very, very, very large pond and you keep trying. And Actually, you're not, you're not, you're not, I, I will disagree with you here. You're a very, very, very big fish in a small thank pond because you no, keep struggling and, 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 and talking about a women participation in dialogues, in, in mediation, in negotiation, in conflict resolution. And we have amazing women out there, but as you know, and I know the numbers are not reflecting that in official uh, peace processes. And once you said uh, that the gatekeepers against women participating 
in track two are much less than uh, gatekeepers uh, that are against um, track one participation for women. Let's talk a little bit about this. And All right, that's a very good question. And I think that's where, where you can look at track two as a training space, you know, that can help, you know, women in this field and women in policy, national security, move into track one, you know, the kind of experience they can gain. Uh, the problem is also, as I said, at least in my work, if you have not had government experience, I just, you will not be able to qualify to come into. There are other track one space, track two spaces where government experience is not warranted. But in the niche that I have defined for myself, I mean, you need to have had policy experience, government experience, right. because you are engaging on policy issues, looking at how to deal with it from a governmental perspective and rather than from a grassroots perspective. There are others that do that work, which is very important, but this is the niche that we have carved for the work. So yes, uh, a track two, I mean, it's, I mean, in, 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 as I said, in the work that I do, you know, I try to involve as many women who have had government experience, but also sometimes what I do is that I, 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 I try to involve women who have, who serve as like advisors to decision makers, even though they are not, or who are um, uh, senior experts and whom I can see are heading into government eventually. And so try to involve in that. But, uh, but increasingly, you know, when I started in this work, in a meeting of 20, there will be one or two women, really. And no women, no and no women conveners. There were no women conveners. Today, I convene four track two dialogues. You know, because part of the problem also with convening is that you need to have funding. So you need to convince the funders that you can you can get this work done. And this remains a difficulty. So, you know, when I am invited to a group of conveners of track two, the number of women remains one or two or three, maybe three, maybe three, mm -hmm. you know, but it's still populated by male. It's majority male dominated as is track one. We are making major inroads. I think, uh, especially in the field of national security, the recent, let's say in the United States, the appointments in the Biden administration of yeah. all these qualified women. Many deployments in the Biden administration. Yeah, national security positions. I think, I think this, is, this is going to, to, to really move the ball forward on this issue. It's, look, it's a work in progress and, and every generation moves the ball forward few meters, you know, but it's a work in progress and, and, and where I am today, looking at the field 20 years ago, the difference is just unbelievable in terms of, you know, the role of women in the field of peace building, the role of women as conveners, the role of women as participants, the role of women as decision makers. It's, it's refreshing to hear that you feel that 20 years ago, you know, Things were not. I have, I have the age on me, you know. <laughs> I have the age perspective. Give me some, you know. I mean, <laughs> I earned that right. <laughs> but I mean, you know, you've expressed also a number of times that women shouldn't be in separate groups. We have this tendency yes. to always put women in separate groups yes. and have the men convene separately, separately, and then the women to feed into that uh, masculine space. 
Uh, what's your theory on this? And in a, in, a, in a region like the Arab world, where patriarchy is so deeply entrenched in our society, how do we overcome this? Look, this is based on looking at reflecting on this recent, recent practice by um, UN envoys in conflict in the region of having these separate rooms for women and for civil society. Look, I'm driven by the assumption that separate rooms are inherently unequal. Mm -hmm. The smaller room is a consultation place, mm -hmm. but the main negotiation, the main eventually agreement or negotiation leading to the agreement are happening in this room, which is often, for example, does not have women or has very few women. You know, now when you speak with the UN envoys, they say, well, I mean, it is the delegations, the delegation we have insisted, we have asked them, we have, you know, um, we, we, we required them, they promised us, and then the delegation arrived and they say, oh, we have women, but they are advisors, they are not sitting at the negotiation table, and you rarely even see them, okay, and that's why they had to do this, you know, separate room, and they look at it, and their, their explanation is that, it is a first step. And then with time, we can bring them more into the negotiation. Right. Well, it's not happening because they are not baking this transition into the process itself from the get-go. And to be very honest, if UUN is funding this process, you as a funder have the right to say there will be no meeting unless I see five women sitting on this side of the table and five women sitting on that side of the table. But what one. usually happens is that you say, oh, the conflict is so bad. You know, we have different Exactly, exactly, exactly. Then I, I keep it in consultation. I keep it in a consultation phase. I keep it in proximity, you know, in me shuttling down. I keep it in shuttle diplomacy until I can, I'm assured as a convener, as a mediator, that I'm going to have five, you know, 30% of women sitting at the table, not as advisors, at the table from each side. You know, and let me say, let me say, I mean, I've had this experience on a, let me give you this just, so years ago, years, years ago, I was working on a project funded by USAID uh, on training nego negotiation skills, okay, mm -hmm. in dealing with, um, with water conflicts, okay, and this was in an Arab country, not in Lebanon, in a, a, a neighboring Arab country. And, and so, and part of the training is you bring, you know, senior staff from the ministry. And so you had to meet with the minister of that ministry and then basically say, we are doing this training workshop and we need you to give us the list of people who will attend these workshops. And then, so we do the first meeting, I get the list ahead of time and it's all men. All right, it's all men. And I, I mean, I've been going around the ministry. There are a lot of offices where there are a lot of women, you know? Right. And so before the next meeting comes, so I come and I say to the minister, you know what? I mean, the funder, in this case, USID, really requires that 30% of the people in the training are women. There was no such requirement. I lied, okay? I lied. I'm saying that now. This and is going on SoundCloud and YouTube. I know, I know, I know, I know. And lo and behold, you know, lo and behold, right? 30% of the participants at the next workshop were women. And, and they turned out to be the most effective, the most knowledgeable participants. My point is that funders have the power to right. enforce this practice on the conflicting parties, because especially in the Arab world, it's not going to come easy. And especially when you have basically 
insurgent groups, you know, that are being brought at the table. They are, I mean, mostly they are men, you know, so right. it's not going to be easy. And, but when the funder in the, or the convener of the process will bake it into the process from the get-go, there will be no meeting unless there are X percent of women sitting at the table from this side and X percent of women at this table from the side, we are not going to have a meeting. And, and I think that is doable. But as you said, there is so much push and rush to make a meeting happen just because, you know, the UN Security, Security Council said you need to get going, the UN envoy need to show that he, he is. That's another issue. We don't have enough UN envoys who are women. Absolutely. I mean, yes, there are definitely. extremely capable, you know, uh, uh, women, uh, women politicians, uh, women who are, have been involved in, 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 uh, you know, in different development projects at the international level. Women politicians from different countries in the region, and they can easily be UN envoys. And look at the number of women UN envoys. So in the past, it was women working on human rights, women working on civil society, women working on women issues. Now you have women participating in committees that have to do with uh, security sector reform. Uh, you have women getting involved in committees that do uh, ceasefire monitoring. You know what I mean? So we are having Transition more and justice, entering, yes, entering all of these different arenas and these sectors that are going to be part of any peace building process that I think um, is, 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 is going to make it even easier to, to, to bring more women as part of the official peace building process. The protest that you so closely followed in 2019, whether in Iraq or in Lebanon, we saw women were in the front line. Women were literally in the front line. They were carrying that banner forward um, that the protests subsided. Uh, what happened there? What do you think happened there? Do you think uh, these protests will return in these countries where the problems are still the same? In fact, maybe they're in worse situations than they were back in 2019. And how can these women move from this space that, you know, the, they're actors in this is on the ground? How can they move to the political space? Because at the end of the day, real change is going to come from the inside. Um, I mean, at least that's what I think, but I would love to hear your views on this. How do you see this transition happening for women? This is a problem that has been long-standing in the Middle East. If you go back to the Algerian independence revolution, you know, many of the women who played important roles during that revolution. And then when it came to, you know, independence, formation of the government, they were sidelined, you know, they became cultural icons, whatever, but they were sidelines from the political process. And we saw it even in Egypt after the uprising, women playing an important role during 2011. And then we go into the government formation before the coup. And during that time, again, women were sidelined, you know, who were at the forefront of the uprising. So uh, I think that's, that's, that's a challenge. So let me first talk about the protest um, because I've been following, because I follow Iraq and Lebanon and Syria, but I follow Iraq and Lebanon very closely. In Lebanon uh, and in Iraq, uh, of course, the pandemic, you know, drained a lot of the revolutionary momentum. But uh, the second part is economic conditions in Lebanon, you know, uh, 
um, the port blast, which forced a lot of these of the civil society activists, including women who were at the forefront of the fight, to basically leave the country and start looking for jobs somewhere else. In Egypt, you have a lot of these activists, including women, are now in jail, you know, and and or have left the country. And uh, so that's 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 the problem. I mean, in Syria, look at at what happened to the Syrian activists between you know those who are killed, those who are forced to exile, those who are, you know. Um, still in detention and we don't know what happened to them. So that whole generation of activism in the in the Middle East, um, which led, you know, the uprisings and the and the Arab Spring in uh, 2011, uh, 2010, 2011, really now, at least in, in the in this first batch of countries. Now what's happened recently in Sudan is hopeful. Absolutely. What might happen in Algeria is hopeful. You know, the recent appointments of I don't know how many women ministers, including in Libya, Libya yeah. it's hopeful. So there are successes and there are failures. There are setbacks and there are wins. And we have been able to score some wins. You know, some of them have been sustainable, some have not. And we have suffered some serious, serious setbacks. But your question is, will they come back? Look, as you said, the structural drivers of these protests are still with us, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in Lebanon, whether it's in Iraq, whether it's in Egypt, whether it's now in Algeria or, you know, um, it's in Jordan, you know, I mean, the structural drivers are there, which is governors. Basically, in the end, what is politics and what do people want from politics? They want to, they want politics to help them run their lives. They want politicians to be part of this relationship with them in organizing their life in an effective, efficient way that brings them life, that brings them happiness, that brings them peace, peace of mind, that, peace of mind. And that, that enables them to, to reach their full potential or as much of their full potential as much that enables them to have children, guarantee peace for peaceful future for their children, that enables them to participate in the building of their countries, in the building of their of a space for their family, and by doing that, in building their country. And, and they want to have a say in how this is done. They elect people who can represent them, but throughout you know that they want to have a say. Now in Lebanon, we have elections, you know, in other countries they don't have elections, free and fair. But still, the real drive is people want to have a say. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's going to change. In fact, if there is anything, the world we are living in today, the social media, the knowledge accumulated by civil society, the networks built through social media across countries. Uh, I mean, look at the, at the recent uprisings of 2019, how many lessons they have learned from the uprising of 2011 and how the 2011 uprising learned from the green movement in Iran in 2009. So the experiential um, knowledge is 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 building you know now government can 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 are very effective at at co-opting at manipulating right. they have resources at their disposal uh, financial but also they have you know power you know military power violent 
you know, means to be able to also drain that revolutionary momentum. But it doesn't mean they can kill it, you know. And I think I, 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 if I'm going to bet on anything, I'm going to bet on the people, you know. I wanted to go back to your work in dialogue and peace processes. And how many dialogues are you currently convening? I'm curious if you can share with us. Yeah, no, no, I can. The, what are some of the anecdotes over the years that you would like to share with us in, in this space? I mean, from your experience and as a woman, I mean, had there been ever an incident that happened because you were a woman and you felt like, gender here uh, came and played a role with the situation. Let me say that 9-11 for me was like this point where I shifted to working on the Middle East before 9-11. Uh -huh. And when I went to the States, I have decided because I am I come from the Middle East, I'm going to avoid what every student from the Middle East does, which is work on issues mm -hmm. of the Middle East. I said, okay, I'm fine. I, I, I need to learn something new. I need to work in different settings. I need every society, every region has its own codes, you know? I need to learn new codes. I need to really push myself and not feel familiar and comfortable, you know, in a setting and, and, and to enhance my learning, uh, my learning, um, um, how to say, the learning opportunities. Mm -hmm. Your learning uh, curve. And, uh, yeah, and the learning curve, yeah. And so, Catholic Foundation at the time had no program in the Middle East. So they had the US-Russia program, but they also they have a civil society program, which was at the time working with transitions in countries in Latin America that were taking place, democratic transition. And then after the fall of the Soviet Union, democratic transition in Eastern Europe. And so we are working with a bunch of civil society organization, trying to help them organize themselves, provide space for them to network, to learn from each other, because these transition happened at different times in Latin America versus, you know, first, and I think it happened in Eastern Europe after. And there was a lot of um, potential for networking, but also learning from each other experiences and basically develop a set of good practices for civil society organization as they navigate this transition period, which was rough. And then also we worked at some point with South Africa as well and some other African countries. And so, and I stayed away from the Middle East. I just stayed away. And 9-11 was somehow this, you know, time when after it happened, it, it just forced me to reflect on, 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 okay, what do I want to focus on? You know, as an Arab American, what is my responsibility here? Mm -hmm. And what is the role where I can contribute to, you know, healing this divide? Because I felt that this was, you know, 9-11 was a moment in this country akin to Pearl Harbor, you know? And, okay. and, 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 and- I was and, there, I was in the US and I know how yeah. the situation was with all of us. Yeah. And so, exactly. And so, and so, and so I said, I need to really shift my focus now and work only on the Middle East and nothing else. Mm -hmm. And so we started then, I was at the time working with the Institute for International um, um, Sustained Dialogue and uh, International Institute for Sustained Dialogue. And we started a dialogue, which was really one of the first of its kind um, around 2003, bringing um, former senior US officials, former senior European officials in conversation with leaders of Islamist parties mm -hmm. in Arab countries, you know, and, and uh, different Arab countries. 
and and then also that was one dialogue and then um and and all of these dialogue usually have a time period you know like two three years and you know specific agenda and um and then we we did and then we had this you know 2003 invasion and um we decided at the institute to focus on iraq as well as part of this de-escalation of conflicts and we convened one of the first track 1.5 that was track 1.5 national reconciliation dialogue in the country uh, brought uh, parliamentarians from iraq brought uh, people from the government at the time people uh, tribal figures people from the opposition people who are like you know baathist uh, uh, former presidential guards mm -hmm. who were in jordan syria and we brought them together over a series of meetings. So you want anecdotes. So during one of these meetings, and that tells you about, you know, women. So I was mediating. So I was, in that meeting, I was the only woman. And then you had, you know, Iraqi men, basically only Iraqi men. And um, and then fistfights started happening uh, in the room. Oh dear, in the room. Yes, 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 yes. Somebody said something which made somebody else angry, and they started hurling accusation at each other. And my the men on my team were like looking at me because I was sharing the session at that on that that time. Look at me. Okay, so what are you going to, to do now? You know? Yeah, what are you going to do now? And so so I said, hey guys, stop in Arabic. So because everything was done being done in Arabic. So I said, I mean, isn't it? shameful for you to do this kind of fist fight and to behave in this manner in front of your fellow Arab women. And whoop, it stopped. So you so, used it, you used that <laughs> card. Uh, exactly, exactly, exactly. I used that card. I was just the share of that session. Remember, I was the share of that session. So, however, as a share, you have you have to be able to use different tactics, especially in times like this, mm -hmm. and to deploy different modes of persuasion, if we can put it this way. And in this case, making them feel ashamed in front of a fellow Arab woman was, you know, it, you know, it, it worked. It made them stop. And they were each back went back to their seat. That's one, you know, simple anecdote. Yeah, of 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 something you have to do, but but you encounter a lot of these settings where people are so angry, you know, they haven't seen each other for a long time. Like in this case, these are people who are in exile versus people who are part of the new political order, and there was a lot of anger, and they wanted, you know, and that evolved into violence. We don't see it too often, but you see it quite often. You know, you see it enough. And end up with the with the changing nature of conflict. Uh, so the tools we're using for, for solving conflicts need to also evolve, I guess. They need to change as well. Where do you see the peace, the peace building business going? Forward? Look, it has, yeah, I mean, the peace building business has really become a business in the last 20 well, years. Sure. You know? And it has really carved for itself a niche in, in the official realm. So you have now a lot of governments that have experts in conflict resolution and peace building. But I think, you know, it's still not enough in terms of rooting itself in the political narratives in different countries, you know, and that's, that's I think, the challenge 
support peace builders and peace building organizations going forward because it has implication for funding you know it needs to we need to be able to uh, to to engage beyond the community we need to engage with politicians we need to engage with um, make the case for you know make it part of the narrative in foreign policy in national security because there is still these silos the way i see it you know you have you know the peace building community you have the national security community you have the foreign policy community right. and they are still operating in silos this silos of peace building has grown expanded has has evolved its uh, its narrative its evaluation practice its evaluation instruments in a way that is really was was not seen 20 years ago which is very good for funding uh, but still i think and that's why for example i insisted on working in a think tank that does more foreign policy and that doesn't have you know anything to do with conflict resolution and and most think tanks do not have a program in conflict resolution mm -hmm. and track to dialogue and and i wanted to make sure you know and that's one of the incentive how to say one of the uh, rationales for me is that we need to start to embed this work of conflict resolution track two in in the work of foreign policy in the work of national security what i would like to do with the program or what i have trying to be uh, you know to do with my with with my with our program at mei is to to really work on this exact intersection between mm -hmm. foreign policy work and between you know conflict resolution and and peace banking work Randa, you're a role model to me personally. I can tell you this because I've been following your work inspired by the way you've conducted all these dialogues. I mean, I know a lot of a lot of times you were in situations with, with, with insurgents, with non-state actors, and uh, I can only imagine how interesting all this uh, could be. Thank you uh, for accepting uh, to be with me today here, and thank you for being our guest on the Diplomat Podcast. Thank you, Karma, for the opportunity. I mean, you are a role model to emulate. I'm so happy to see you work, see you work, see how you are growing professionally. It's just a pleasure for me. Thank you. Thank you so much.